Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, to this foundational passage that we've been looking at when it comes to the subject of the church, Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll read from verse 40. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added uh, to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of His Word. Uh, over the last number of weeks, we have been looking at this portrait of the church uh, presented to us in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These were the four pillars the early church had uh, committed themselves to. These were their priorities, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, when we think of a worship service today, uh, those four things ought to be included, preaching, fellowship, the ordinances, breaking of bread, and of course, baptism, and prayer. But what's missing? What do we have today that's not listed in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42? Singing. That's right. But why isn't it there? Why isn't it mentioned in Acts 2.42? It's such an important part of our worship. Why isn't it mentioned in that key verse? Now, there may be a, a little hint of singing there in verse, 40, in verse 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. But that uh, word praising may not have been a reference to singing. It may have been a reference to prayer, praising God in prayer. And it seems that that took place in the home, along with the breaking of bread, rather in the temple courts. Why isn't singing mentioned? Or is it simply me that wants to ask that kind of question? Well, let's consider the, the subject together. The first thing, I want to look at the whole subject of the worship of the church this morning, and the first thing we need to consider is that God tells us how He is to be worshipped. It is God who determines how He is to be worshipped. Exodus 20 and verse 4, the third commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why not, God? Why can I not use an idol? Because after all, that idol is to you, and I, help, I think that having an idol in worship helps me visually, visualize and imagine who you are, 
Why can I not use an idol in worship? And God says, because I said so. Because it's my way. It's me who determines how I should be worshipped. I have the right to tell you how to worship me. Worship comes from two English words, worth and ship, like lordship, position. It's giving uh, worth to God in His position. It's not about you, God says. It's about me. It's giving worship to me. Now, I hope that principle is clear, that God has the right to determine how He is to be worshipped, because worship, after all, is for Him. And that's the difference between Luther's Reformation and Calvin's Reformation. So, Luther came uh, at the time of the Reformation and said, let's do away with everything that runs contrary, sorry, contrary to the Bible. Calvin said, let's do away with everything that isn't sanctioned by the Bible that you can only use in worship what God has told you to use in worship. So, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 10 for a moment. Leviticus chapter 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Here's Aaron's two sons who were uh, priests uh, after Aaron, and uh, uh, along with Aaron, um, Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So here's Nadab and Abihu. They thought they would be a bit innovative, and they would introduce something new into the worship. Fire came out from the uh, altar and struck them dead. Why? Because they worshipped in a way that God had not commanded. I hope you grasp that principle. That's a fundamental principle. It's known as the regulative principle by theologians, and it's that you must do in worship only what God has commanded you to do. That's fundamental. The second thing we need to understand is that what worship was like at the time of Jesus. Now, there were four types of worship at the time of Jesus. There was family worship, there was individual worship, there was national worship in the temple, and there was local worship in the synagogue. Now, since we are thinking about the corporate worship of the people of God, we're going to concentrate on the temple, what happened in the temple, and what happened in the synagogue, in the temple. Every Jew was expected to attend the temple regularly. If he lived outside Judea, he was expected to go to the temple three times a year, most significantly to the Passover. Worship in the temple centered on sacrifice. When the worshiper approached the temple, he would hand his sacrifice to the temple servant who would take it and prepare it for sacrifice. As he moved towards the Holy of Holies, that inner cubicle of the temple, 
where God was said to dwell. He would pass through the court of the Gentiles. There was a notice then uh, put up on the wall, which has recently been dug up by archaeologists, which said no Gentile may proceed beyond this point or he will be killed. He moved then into the temple, uh, into the court of the women in the temple. He then progressed from the temple, uh, from the court of the, the women to the court of uh, the men and uh, no woman uh, was allowed to enter the court of the men. So, no woman could ever see a sacrifice being offered. The priests and the Levites performed their duties in their vestments according to strict rules and regulations. Now, in the uh, men's court, there was singing, and this is important for us to understand, but it wasn't congregational singing. It was performed by ordained Levitical choirs and ordained Levitical musicians. You couldn't just join in. You could observe. You could add your amen, but you weren't allowed to sing. I hope that's clear. People were allowed to sing at home with their families. They were allowed to sing on pilgrimage towards Jerusalem, but in the uh, temple courts there was no singing. They could not sing there. They could listen, but they could not sing. Now, in the New Testament, we also read of synagogues, and synagogues were used again for the corporate worship of the people of God. There were thousands upon thousands of synagogues throughout the known world. And although there were thousands and thousands of synagogues, they all followed exactly the same pattern. Uh, the women were separated off, again sitting behind uh, a lattice uh, screen uh, out of sight. They were not allowed to participate in worship. They could only observe. So, the inclusion of women into a worship service is a New Testament blessing. I think we need to understand that. The service started with a call to worship, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then there would be a reading of the law, set uh, uh, liturgical prayers, and then they would read from the prophets. Seven boys or men from the congregation were invited to read the law. They had to practice it, so they were given the, it the day before uh, because they not only had to read it in Hebrew, but they had to translate it into the local language. And uh, the, the uh, leader of the synagogue would have a long pointer with a little finger on the end of it, and he would uh, uh, follow the text along as they read. And if they made a mistake, he would take that and he would wrap them over the knuckles with it. So, that was something that was taken very seriously. And then after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, there was an exposition of Scripture, and uh, they would invite a visiting rabbi. So, they might say, it's nice to see Rabbi Urit here. Understand, he's principal of the Irish Baptist College. Would he come up and explain the portion that has been read? Or it's nice to see uh, Rabbi Chambers here. He's long experience in the pastorate, or Rabbi English. Perhaps they would come up and expound the Scriptures to us. It's nice to see uh, Rabbi Saul. I understand that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Perhaps he would come forward, Acts 13, and explain the Scripture that has been read. Or it's nice to have Rabbi Jesus 
I uh, understand he's an up-and-coming teacher. Perhaps he would come forward and explain to us Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is on me uh, and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And Jesus, you remember, stands up and says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. After the preaching, a priest, if he were present, would pronounce the benediction. uh, And if there was no Uh, priest, the rabbi, would close in prayer. Now, in the synagogue, there was no singing whatsoever. None. You remember synagogues had their origin in the uh, Babylonian captivity where they went into exile for 70 years. And uh, because the temple was out of action and destroyed, they did not sing because they only could sing at the temple. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Our tormentors asked of us uh, to sing the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And when the people came back to the land, restored the temple, the Levitical um, uh, priests were reintroduced, and so singing in the temple took place again. So, have you got the picture? Two places of worship, public worship, the temple and the synagogue. No singing in the synagogue, and singing at the temple was restricted to Levitical choirs and Levitical musicians. So, do you see why it's not mentioned in Acts chapter 2? Because Acts chapter 2 is a transition period. They were in the temple. They could hear the psalms being sung, but remember, they weren't allowed to join into the the singing of the psalms, but they could hear them, and there was no singing whatsoever until the New Testament directed it to be so. God has the right, that's the first principle, to determine how he is to to, uh, be worshipped. Second principle, singing is not mentioned in Acts chapter 2 because it was a period of transition. Thirdly, I want you to notice the change that took place in worship in the New Covenant. Turn with me to John chapter 4 to the woman of Samaria. John chapter 4. This is an important passage because in this passage, uh, Jesus predicts the end of temple worship. So, John chapter 4. And remember, this woman is an immoral woman. She's had five husbands. The man that she's presently living with is not her husband. And so, uh, Jesus then says to her, in verse 16, go call your husband and and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What, What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not, for you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In order to direct attention away from herself, she asked this 
theological question. The Samaritans had a rival site to the temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped on Mount Zion at the temple. Uh, and she says, what, which temple should we, we use? Remember, the Samaritans were distant cousins of the Jews. And Jesus said, salvation of, is of the Jews. It should be the temple in Jerusalem where you worship. But he goes on and he says, the time is coming and has now come when you will neither worship on this mountain nor on, uh, in Jerusalem, for true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is predicting not just predicting, he is abolishing temple worship. He is saying it's all coming to an end. You will neither worship on Mount Gerizim or you will worship on, on Mount Zion. Uh, you won't worship on Mount Zion because it's all coming to an end, and true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You remember in Mark 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, he says, all these great stones, the time is coming when not one stone will be left on another. The temple is going to be tumbled. It's all coming to an end. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70 when the Jews uh, uh, devastated Jerusalem, conquered, devastated Jerusalem, and tumbled the temple, bringing it to an end. 300 years later, a mosque was built on that exact temple site. We're not happy that a mosque is there. But as long as a mosque is there, the temple will never be reinstituted and sacrifices won't be offered again. What an insult that would be to the work of Christ. It's all been tumbled and temple worship has come to an end. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, most obviously, the sacrifices of the Old Testament have all finished. Jesus was the final and the fullest sacrifice. To offer a sacrifice on any human altar for sin is an insult to the work and the sufficiency of that work of Christ. But all those things, the priesthood, the special vestments, the altar, the sacred spaces, all of that associated with the temple has come to an end. It has all been swept away in the new covenant. When the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, it symbolized the end of temple worship and the direct access that we have into God's presence through the rent veil of His flesh. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And also, the Levitical choirs and the Levitical musicians that were associated with the temple have all been abolished too in the New Covenant. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the privilege that you have of singing the praise of God and playing an instrument is a New Covenant privilege. It's a blessing that was secured by the blood of Christ. I hope that's clear. So, principles, God has the right to determine how he is to be worshipped. Worship at the time of Christ was in the synagogue, no singing there, temple, restricted singing performed by Levitical choirs and musicians. Then, 
the change that the New Testament effected. You will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. All temple worship came to an end in Christ Jesus. And then fourthly, if the Old Testament um, worship uh, Old Testament worship in the temple is abolished, what is to be included in New Testament worship? Remember the regulative principle that we can only do what God has told us to do. God has the right to tell us how He is to be worshipped. So what things then do we see in the New Testament? New Testament, because the temple has been abolished, in the New Testament, what things do we see? What elements should be included in New Testament worship? Well, first of all, the public reading of Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, chapter 4 and verse 13, 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So, Scripture was read at uh, worship services in the early church. Now, that maybe was a little bit more important uh, then than it is now, because remember, there was no printing press, no printed Bibles, nobody could have a quiet time. Nobody could read the Bible during the week for themselves, because nobody had a copy of the Scriptures. So, it was important that the Scriptures would be read publicly. If people were ever going to learn the Scriptures, the Scriptures had to be read. But let me just make a point. I've been at services where the Scriptures have never been read. The pastors maybe stood up and preached on one verse of Scripture without the rest, uh, any reference to Scripture throughout the rest of the service. We need to understand that the reading of Scripture is the only inspired part of our service, because the Scriptures are the inspired Word of God. And then what else was included? Well, Acts 2.42, apostles' doctrine, there was preaching, there was the breaking of bread and baptism, and there was prayer. So, you have uh, public reading of Scripture, you have preaching, you have fellowship, you have the ordinances, you have prayer, and then you have prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, prophecy. Prophecy was a direct revelation of God and it was given until the completion of the canon of Scripture. And tongues was a form of prophecy, because when tongues was translated, Paul puts it on the same level of prophecy. So, it was prophecy with a distinctive kind of flavor to it, which we'll look at in the future. So, so there was prophecy as well, which we don't have today because we have a, a completed Bible. And lastly, there was singing. We know from the New Testament that the New Testament church sang. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So, there was singing. James 5, 13, if anyone is afflicted, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. But I suppose the clearest references to singing in the New Testament are found in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Now, just Turn with me to these passages, because we're going to conclude our service 
by drawing out some principles from about singing in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you turn over to the book of Colossians and chapter 3 and verse 15, Colossians 3 and verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, two passages that tell us clearly that the early church sang. Now, remember where we've come from, you must worship in the way that God wants you to worship. Temple worship in the Old Testament has been abolished, so you must only do the things that the New Testament tells us that we should do. And here in these two places, Paul writes to the churches, two different churches, and commands them to sing. So singing praise to God was part of the worship of God in the early church. So, what can we deduce from these two passages about singing? Well, first of all, we must sing congregationally. The whole congregation was involved. Paul is writing to the whole church, and he tells them to speak to one another, to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Colossians teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, everyone was involved. Remember in the Old Testament, in the temple, only the Levitical musicians and choir members could sing. But not in the New Testament. Everyone should sing. That's not to say that you can't sing a solo or a choir can't sing to a congregation, because if you speak to one another or uh, uh, teach one another, that can be done by uh, one person, by a number of people, or by the whole congregation. But it is a New Testament principle that the church sang. Now, for years, the church didn't sing. Uh, up until the time of the Reformation, what was sung was performed by professional musicians. It was usually sung in Latin uh, so that people couldn't understand it. Uh, the ordinary worshiper couldn't understand it, but when the Bible came back into the church, singing came back into the church also. Now, you will know that I can't sing a note. Uh, I'm tone deaf. Somebody said to me, you're all right if you start in the right note in the first place, but, but I, I'm on live stream, um, I'm told that I do not edify, but I do entertain because people are, are laughing at my voice. Now, I reckon, like this, God has given me this voice. Okay? So, if you have any objections to me singing, you take it up with my Creator. Okay? And if He has given me this voice, He wants me to sing. So, I sing. And I put everybody off. And I put the musicians off. 
But I'm not going not to sing because that was a privilege that was purchased by the blood of Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are to sing sincerely. Ephesians 5 verse 19, singing and making melody in your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your heart. That's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament worship. Everything in the temple was designed to appeal to the senses, the, um, the incense to the smell, the, the priestly robes and the, the artifacts and all of those things, even the very design of the temple was to appeal to the eye or it was to appeal to the ear with the, the singing and, and the bells. But when Jesus announced the abolition of the temple, he said, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That word spirit is with a small s. It's here in the heart. It's not stimulated by um, uh, outward uh, sensory things. It's in the heart that I worship. It's my mind engaging with God. It's, he is spirit, and true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So, in New Testament worship, you need to think. It's not, it's not visual. It's not external. You need to engage them, your mind. You need to think about what you sing and how you sing. You need to think of the truths that you are singing about because you worship in spirit. You make music in your heart, congregationally, sincerely, soundly. Ephesians tells us that we are to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians is a little more direct. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with, um, with all wisdom. Singing is instructive. Singing is didactic. You teach one another as you sing. And if that is true, you need to be careful what you sing, because singing affects what you believe. In the early church, there was a man called Arius who was a heretic. He denied the deity of Christ, that Jesus was God, and he was opposed by a man called Athanasius. And they, the church called a council, the Council of Nicaea, to determine what the truth is. And uh, when Arius came to that council, the vote nearly went in his favor because he was a prolific hymn writer. And all around the Mediterranean, they were singing his songs, and the singing of his songs affected what the church believed and nearly drove the church into heresy. What about homes from, or, or hymns from dubious sources? That, uh, that we sing um, songs that perhaps we don't agree with all the theology of the people who write those songs. Let me quote from our, our own hymn book. It's, a, it's an introduction uh, that was written that quotes Charles Spurgeon in his introduction to the hymn book, and he writes this. Ken Moore pointed this out to me just before uh, he went to be with the Lord. Spurgeon writes this, Whatever may be thought of our taste, we have uh, used it without prejudice, and a good hymn has not been rejected because of the character of its author 
or the heresies of the church in whose hymnal it has occurred, so long as the language and the Spirit commended the hymn to our heart, we have included it. Do you see that? You, you don't judge the hymn or the song on where it comes from, but you judge it on the truth it contains. I think that's a very, very important principle. So, we are to sing congregationally. We are to sing sincerely. We are to sing soundly. We are to sing biblically, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, those who believe in exclusive psalmody and only sing Old Testament psalms point out to us that those three titles are designations and categories of psalms in the Psalter. That there are some psalms that are psalms, there are some hymns, psalms that are hymns, and there are some psalms that are spiritual songs. There are 67 psalms in the Psalter, two hymns, and 35 songs. Psalm 76 is a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song. Now, I love the psalms, and I love to sing the psalms, but I don't think that's what Colossians particularly is teaching. As Spurgeon says, is it, does it simply mean psalms, psalms, and psalms? Because there were other designations of psalms. Some were mitkims, some were maskils, and some were songs of ascent. Now, my Reformed Presbyterian friend would say to me, at least I know that everything I sing in a service is inspired. And that's true, because he's singing the Word of God. But, but notice what Colossians says. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, it does not say, let the Psalter dwell in you richly, nor does it say, let the Word of God dwell in you richly, but it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, that phrase, the Word of Christ, must be understood must be understood as the teaching of Christ received directly through Christ or indirectly through His apostles and the writers of the New Testament. So, all of Revelation is to be included in our worship. So, the doctrines of the Trinity, of redemption, of propitiation, of the deity of Christ, of the finished work of Christ, of the ascension uh, into heaven, of the high priestly ministry of Jesus, all of the second coming of Jesus, all of that is to be included. Now, it is there in the Psalms, but as Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And I think it's important that we worship with all of the New Testament light that we have, that we worship with the lights on. And saying that, I also think our worship ought to be modeled on the book of Psalms. If the book of Psalms is the divine hymn book of the Old Testament, and it was, then surely there are principles in that hymn book that we can draw on when we sing. So, some of the psalms are short, Psalm 117. Some are long. I wouldn't recommend singing Psalm 119 in one go, but uh, some are long, some are short. Some are songs of worship, 
Some are songs of experience, some are joyful, some are songs of lament. And all of that is to be included. All of that. You know, I, I have been at services where, where um, God is not worshipped in the song choice, that there's no objective worship rendered to God. That's why I, I like to start a service with a, like this morning, hark the herald angels sing, where, where you're exalting and you're focusing upon God. But all of that is to be included So we are to sing congregationally, sincerely, soundly, biblically, doxologically, making melody to the Lord, to the Lord in your heart. Colossians, with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. Johann Sebastian Bach said, the aim of all music is the glory of God. I'm not sure if that's the aim of all music, but it should be the aim of Christian music. And Different church traditions worship in in different ways, and um, and uh, we should we should allow that, and we should be free and flexible with that. But we need to understand that worship is to God. I love uh, Neil Young. He's like the Canadian Bob Dylan. And uh, Gail, a few years ago, bought me tickets to see Neil Young in the Odyssey. And um, Sean Coyle, who used to be with Jerry Anderson on Radio Ulster, he said the morning of the concert, he's the most self-indulgent performer that he had ever seen. And so he was. He ruined the concert for me. So he had these long guitar riffs that would maybe last 30 minutes, and, and your mind was just anywhere but on that guitar riff. You wanted him just to get on to the next song that, that you knew. But worship isn't about us. It's about God. It's to God. Eric Alexander, who was the minister of the Tron, a young person came to him. He was heading off to university, and Eric recommended a certain church to him. And uh, when he came back at half term, Eric says, did you go to that church? And he says, yeah, I went to the church. He says, but I, I got nothing out of the worship. And Eric Alexander put his arm around him, and he said, I thought God was supposed to get something out of the worship. Worship is not for you. Worship's for Him. I think that's an important principle. We are to sing with God in our thoughts, and we are to address His praise to Him. Sing congregationally, sing sincerely, sing soundly, sing biblically, sing doxologically, sing uh, thankfully. What is praise? It is giving thanks. Ephesians, giving thanks always for everything. Uh, If you look at Colossians, the passage in uh, Colossians, verse 16, uh, the previous phrase to verse 16 is, and be thankful, and then uh, with thankfulness in your heart to God. Two bookends, like, uh, of giving thanks. Now, if if you look just at verse 16, I, I think this is important. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Now, that's not a good translation. The authorized version is actually better there, with, with grace in your hearts to God, that, that we have experienced the grace of God in our hearts, 
that we are debtors to mercy alone, of covenant mercy we sing, that, that God has been gracious. His grace has brought us from death to life, from darkness to light. We are recipients of His, of His grace, and that grace then bubbles up and overflows into thankfulness. And that, that always, we have so much to thank Him for, giving thanks for the grace that we have received. Where would you be if it wasn't for the grace of God? You would be lost and without hope, without God in this world. But His grace has saved you. His grace continues to strengthen you. It is grace that's brought you safe thus far, and grace will lead you home. And so often, so often we're like those nine lepers who fail to return and to give thanks to God, give thanks to the source of, of their healing and deliverance to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing worse than a thankless child. We had to discipline that out of our children. We had to teach them to say thanks. And Christians should be bubbling over with indebtedness, with thankfulness that they come to praise Him. So, singing should be congregational. Should be, we should sing congregationally. We should sing sincerely, soundly, biblically, doxologically, Christologically, and uh, thankfully. Amen.